1: That's right, Whistler, welcome to episode 145 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, and your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on your own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here, let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Kirlman, and with me like Zane's righteous vindication, the EU guru himself, the Count of Two Continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler! Hey everybody, how's it going? It's a nice day, I've been busy, doing good, looking forward to this discussion, I mean it feels like just yesterday we were talking about that, or even five minutes ago, I'm not exactly sure.
0: Yeah, you know, going um, all right uh, on this end. Uh, busy, busy, busy times, of course, because the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable is off the ground at Rebels Round on Twitter, uh, Facebook.com slash Rebels Roundtable or RebelsRoundtable.com, of course, folks. Uh, we just simul-released our episode from this show about Son of Dathomir. For that, we've recorded uh, the first episode to discuss Spark of Rebellion, so uh, that's uh, getting off the ground at this point, plus uh, my wife is slowly getting back up uh, and around after having her gallbladder removed. It seems like everything went swimmingly with that. Um, she just got uh, offered a new job, albeit uh, a night one, so we'll see how that goes, uh, how that her schedule and mine start to compare with that. And I'm actually looking right now into the possibility of doing an online or running some online stuff uh, for our county for uh... weekends and evenings to help new teachers get acclimated to being new teachers so it seems as though uh... busy is the operative word on this end but of course we have our little chunk of sunday set aside for uh, a recording beyond the films i know you folks don't hear it until late in the week but uh... we actually record these most of the time on early sunday afternoon uh... well, well for me it's, heck, it's late morning for mark because i'm eastern he's pacific so uh, busy times, but uh, the show must go on,
1: so to speak. That's right. That's right. In fact, after this, I'm running off and doing some more haunted house stuff. It's go, go, go over here. I mean, I barely have time to get these edited at the moment. I've got so many scout activities set up in the next three months. I'm like, Whoa! Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we pick up where we left off with Part 2 of Dark Horse Comics' Knights of the Old Republic, Volume 6, Vindication, by John Jackson Miller. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. This is
0: definitely the one we've been waiting for. Um, Knights of the Old Republic had been building up the story of the prophecy that led the Jedi Covenant to killing all their Padawans except for Zayn, framing Zayn for that murder, and Zayn going on the run, and then his fight, essentially, to find the evidence necessary to clear his name and presumably bring down the Covenant for what they did to the Padawans and such, all in the name, supposedly, of keeping the Sith from rising again. And we built up to the point where Vector actually really was a turning point here. It wasn't a climax, as we saw with Legacy, but it was definitely a turning point. Unlike its version in, what, Rebellion and Dark Times, where it barely really had any effect at all. In the case here of Knights of the Old Republic, Vector sent us off on this idea that, okay, the Days slash Knights storyline, or storylines, had given Zane a few clues. Now he's run into Celeste Morn, and she's given him a key to uh, the Sanctum of the Exalted, where evidence could be found uh, on Odrin. We saw that back in Exalted, which was the first part of the Vindication trade paperback. We are now doing uh, the second slightly more than half, Vindication Parts 1 through 4, which is Issues 32 to 35 of the original series here. And now, having been there, he has what he needs, and as we got to the end of Turnabout, one of the members of the Covenant, Zammar, had decided to turn against the Covenant, or at least to not take them at their word on everything. He's willing to hear Zayn's side of the story and help to figure out what the actual truth is, as opposed to the truth he's being fed. And that brings us into Vindication. And this really is the climax, in a lot of ways, of the series, or at least of the series up to this point. Um, it sends Zane sort of into the belly of the beast. We find out who the real mastermind has been behind everything and it's not who we would necessarily expect. We get a brief origin story for that character, and we finally see what comes of this feud, so to speak, between Zane and Lucian Dre. Um, It makes for some awesome storytelling, some great action. It really kind of ends too soon in a lot of ways. Um, And it sets the series off on a new direction. There have been hints laid out through uh, the previous 30 or so issues of where that new direction would go. But at this point... We weren't really paying attention to it. We were mostly paying attention to this story. Um, Those loose threads that have been left hanging in the previous issues are going to be what become uh, the basis for the rest of this series. The other 20 some odd or 15 some odd issues of this series before it finally wraps up prior to the Knights of the Old Republic War miniseries that, in my opinion, really didn't need to be there. So in a sense, this series gets two climaxes, this one and the one that comes around issue number 50 personally. I prefer this one, and as cool as it is to see how things play out in that second chunk of the series, this is the big one. This is the one where everything kind of reaches its absolute peak, which is great, but it also means that the rest of the series from here on, it almost feels tacked on. Not entirely, because you can see that the threads have already been laid there, but I made the comparison, I think, last episode to Babylon 5, how when they were forced into the idea that maybe they were only going to get four seasons instead of five. They took what would have been season five and four and condensed them down into season four. Then when they finally got picked up by TNT to continue that series with Nutella movies, uh, a season five, a spinoff, and all this other stuff, they kind of had to work to create a season five that still tied into everything else and still was part of those broader storylines, but perhaps wasn't exactly where they had wanted to head because in a sense the climax, the highest point, had already passed. They still had a climax, but the highest point had already passed, and that's kind of what we've got here. Um, I would have been perfectly fine and considered satisfied if Knights of the Old Republic had ended with issue number 35. It goes on, and we get some good storytelling as it goes on, but what's left almost feels like, if not a separate series, but sort of a sideline of stories as the main bulk of the thrust of the series has already been wrapped up. And don't even get me started on Knights of the Old Republic War when it comes to tacking on something unnecessary. So at this point, this is the high point of the series, the best that it gets. It's awesome, but you have to have read from the beginning of the series to really get the awesomeness of that impact. Um, but one of my favorite Star Wars stories of this particular era.
1: Oh, absolutely. I agree there, 100%. Now, you mentioned you know, the, the two climaxes, and again, you know, you're spot on – I like the fact, though, that John Jackson Miller's style of storytelling feels very reminiscent to what we get with Lord of the Rings. You know, you, you get lots of different, you know, highs and lows and, and climatic battles right out the gate and stuff like that. Uh, but but for me, I attribute that to to John Jackson Miller being a great storyteller. You know, you mentioned, you know, you how you don't like war. It felt tacked on. I always felt like all the way through this series and even into war, you know, I always felt like John had a plan for this era. You know, I mean, he even was fleshing out Knight Errant, you know, with with Kara Holt and her character and where that's set in the time frame. And then you've got the Lost Tribe of the Sith and how that kind of ties in with other things and stuff that are going on very subtly and stuff like that. But I always had this, this picture of him as like a mini George Lucas set in the KOTOR era, you know, <laughs> like he just had this overall envision of what was going on and in directions he'd like to take things. And this story really shows that I mean, I I too with you, like if this did end right there, it would be a totally satisfactory conclusion. I'm very glad it didn't end uh, because it continued to give me a really fun ride. I enjoyed it all the way up to 50 and even into war. Uh, I know when it got to 50 and then they did the war thing. For me, I always kind of felt like, well, that was part of that whole, you know, well, they didn't want numbers getting really big, and that was when they rebooted. We well, are just going to put out small series, and it's going to still count as the long one, but we're not going to market that because we're afraid we're killing our sales. Like, I always felt like that was what kind of really killed KOTOR in the end, that once they made that decision, and because war didn't sell very good, because it did seem like it was tacked on instead of no longer being continuation of the original story, that they just stopped right there. But John left me you know this this conclusion was so big to everything that was set up from the beginning that you were really kind of like well, where are we going to go from here you know what's left and i found from this going forward was still a very 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 satisfactory tale i wasn't i was excited about it i enjoyed where it was going i was curious about the other little tidbits and things and how it still progressively got us closer to reven and malik and the game so that was always something that i was always really excited for But for Zane's character and the way that this story moves him and stuff, this was very satisfactory because this was the the this is the vindication. I mean, this is it from from the very first time you open the KOTOR comic book and you watch what these masters do to these Padawans. This is that moment you've been waiting to fist pump to drop it down. and Yes. You know, that was what I enjoyed about this the most. The, the feelings that you got when you saw Zane going up against his master and you saw his master on the verge of just losing it all. I mean, and even though the, the very end of this comic does classic John Jackson Miller. I, I'm sitting there scratching my head still to this. When we get to the end here in the spoiler part, I'm scratching my head going, wait, is there a whole nother story waiting to be told here? Because like, I'm just ding, ding, ding. You know, my little peaked meter is going off of just the last panel of the comic here. You know, so we'll get to that as the spoilers go. But yeah, the art, it's got Brian Ching and it's also got art by uh, Bongo and Joe uh, Pimentel. And, I, you know, I always say Brian Ching is, is definitely who I associate with the KOTOR comics and the looks and stuff. So his is in two different spots. Like he does pages, which, of course, you know, if you're getting single issues, he'll have certain issues. But in this, he is pages 77 through 98 and 121 through 164. And they definitely feel distinct because for me, it's like his is what I envision. It's like it's like when you're watching the Star Wars films, you know, and then all of a sudden you're watching like a cartoon version of that same film, you know, or or better yet, Lord of the Rings, it's like watching the live action Lord of the Rings and then watching the cartoon version. You're just like, wait, this isn't quite line up. And when you get to those other artists spots and you go from Ching's stuff to theirs, it definitely goes off the beam into the cartoony. And it's it's not terrible, but compared to Ching's work, it's not great either. So I, I do kind of have a, a little rough time when I get into some of that. But I like the fact they give us some flashbacks. And, you know, and that's something in a global fandom aspect. You know, a lot of people say Star Wars doesn't do flashbacks. And I'm like, BS, man. Star Wars has been doing flashbacks for longer than we think. And, you know, think about the fact that the Clone Wars was taking things like Godzilla and King Kong and, and Seven Samurai and, and incorporating all these themes into their show there's nothing to say that we couldn't have flashbacks in star wars aside from some people being stubborn so i i love the fact that the, that the flashbacks were used so well to drive the story to add to the character depths i i the way they did that with with three characters was really cool i really got a kick out of the way that that all wraps up so i, I hope the rest of you beyonders out there are as excited as i am for where we're going with this next
0: yeah fun use of the flashbacks with the exception of the artwork. I mean, at least in this particular arc, they used the alternate artist just for the flashback stuff. We have Brian Ching uh, doing his excellent work for 32, 34, and 35. And then 33, which is essentially all a flashback, is Bong Dezo's crazy, really, really cartoony, goofy, over-exaggerated artwork where you're kind of like, what when you look at some of these characters um uh, thankfully they are at least recognizable but only just uh, in some cases but uh we'll get to that i guess a little bit as we go along we've analyzed their attacks sir and there are spoilers should i have your ship standing by evacuate in our moment of trials? i think you overestimate their chances
1: Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films.
0: All right, so issue-by-issue issue summaries this time around. It's just a little bit after what we saw in Vindication. Zamar's had a chance to meet with uh, Zane and Griff, who we last saw him holding at Saber Point, along with Master Vrook and Vandar and others, to essentially come up with a plan of how to deal with and expose the Jedi Covenant. Uh, so we pick up at the Dre Estate, where Zamar shows up with Griff and Zane supposedly as prisoners. Zane, at this point, is, again, supposedly wearing the mirror talisman and has Sith eyes. He is an evil Sith. He even has a dark-colored cloak. However, it's just basically contact lenses and a fake mirror talisman that has Zane's lightsaber stuck inside of it. They make their way inside, uh, and we learn on the way in uh, that Krinda was a student of Vodo, Uh, Like Master Vodo and Vodo Sias Bass back in uh, Dark Lords of the Sith, right? The guy that had taught Exar Kun, uh, who Exar Kun eventually kills and all that stuff, back in Dark Lords of the Sith. Very, very cool connection there. Uh, We learned a little bit more about how the Jedi essentially uh, are all kind of divided up into causes at this point. The Jedi High Council doesn't want to choose any particular threat to go after. It's like they're, they're choosing to step back from everything. They have this vision of serenity. Uh, whereas the revanchists now go after the Mandalorians or watch on them, the Jedi Covenant watches the Sith, all trying to keep the Sith or the Mandalorians from becoming the big threat that could take over the galaxy all over again. Uh, they make it inside the estate, and they are confronted by not just Lucian, who is there to supposedly uh, take them both into custody, but also Hazen. Hazen is a character that we've met a couple of times in the past. When he has shown up, it's been kind of a shock. We saw him back in that origin story for Lucien, for instance. Um, but one of the things that we saw most recently in Exalted was that he was, in a lot of ways, giving orders. Uh, he's the one who said, bring the Sith artifacts all the way back to Coruscant rather than just destroying them right then and there. So we've gotten the sense over time that this guy is more powerful than just being a retainer for the Dre family. He actually is acting in some ways on behalf of Krinda. Uh, or in her stead, as we will eventually find out. Now, even at this point, Zamar doesn't realize the true extent of his power. Uh, Zane creates a diversion, again pretending to be the Sith Lord, going off and starting a uh, uh, basically a threat against everyone. And he mentions these other Sith artifacts supposedly back on a container aboard their ship, and Zamar confirms it. And they use this as a ruse to get Zamar to leave, along with quite a few of the guardians of the Dre estate, to go get those, which leaves it at least somewhat unguarded. You basically have Lucian and Hazen and Quanilla there with Zayn, and that's about it. Only Hazen at this point has seen through the ruse and immediately attacks Zayn, breaking the talisman, the fake talisman, and taking his lightsaber from the inside. Um... They realize it is treachery, but Zamar has managed to pull off what he was planning to do. He gets them all, like a bunch of the Guardians, uh, to the front gates, as they're supposedly going to leave for the hangar, and uses that moment to open the hangar doors, and in comes forces loyal to the Jedi High Council to arrest and take down the Covenant, just as Master Vrook had planned, uh, with Zamar at their side. As this is all going down, however, Hazen initiates what amounts to uh his master stroke uh, he contacts covenant acolytes knights and shadows who are essentially hidden amongst the regular jedi order and gives them the command word vindication as everything wrong with would say roll credits right that's the name of the arc and essentially he gives the big lie that by putting lucian inside the jedi high council they've managed to root out the the source of sith danger of a sith force poised to attack the Republic, and found it inside the Jedi High Council, therefore ordering everyone to essentially turn on them, secure the Sith artifacts in a local storehouse, uh, turn on the other Jedi, and basically turn on the Jedi High Council, ignoring uh, any orders coming from them, and to rally at the Dre Estate as essentially their new headquarters, with the protection of Lady Krynda. again, we will find what's happened to her in a in a later issue here, um, to essentially save the Jedi Order from itself, even though it's all a lie. Quinilla knows this, Lucian knows this, but they played a role in how all of this came together. Um, Lucian didn't want this. He wanted to cede these agents in to protect the Jedi Order, not to bring it down essentially from the inside. But all along, he's been manipulated by Hazen into wanting what Hazen wanted. Uh, and at this point, uh, the Jedi are attacking... But Hazen has just a little bit more up his sleeve. Inside this gauntlet, uh, we'll find a, a crush gauntlet here, he also has a control device here. Um, and he makes use of what uh, uh, he refers to as part of Zane's sudden reversals of fortune. Zane's special relationship with the Force is all about quick reversals of fortune. And now he pulls his own and is able to blast away the sky bridge that a bunch of the Jedi are on. And it's not a bomb. He's managed to turn the Republic fleet in orbit, right? The ones hooked together by that Vandervalus chain that slaves all of them to the Swift Shore. Uh, And the Swift Shore, of course, under Kareth being the flagship, is now under his command, Thanks to the controls in that gauntlet. We'll see why in the next issue, but essentially he's managed to turn the Republic fleet on the Jedi forces on the ground, and they're blasting away, decimating those forces, even as Hazen manages to get to his own storehouse, it seems, of at least some Sith artifacts, and emerges wearing an unusual helmet bearing a red lightsaber, and another lightsaber in his other hand, basically armed for war, as we see him on the cover of 33, saying, The time for visions is past. The prophecy of the five, from earlier in the series, is fulfilled. Let the fire of truth rain down. And we get the very cool little uh, segment down at the bottom that those who have the trade paperback, I guess, wouldn't see that says, Next, untold tales of the Jedi. Which, of course, is cool, because aside from untold, it's... The, the logo is drawn exactly like the logo of Tales of the Jedi, the series that gave birth to the Knights of the Old Republic games, that gave birth to the comic series. A very action-packed, twist-and-turn-filled first issue of Vindication.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I I did start out a little confused, but, of course, John Jackson Miller explains it all right away. You know, I was like, wait, why is, why is Zane's eyes red? Why does he have the talisman? But they give us that, and that was great. I loved I, you know, he's like, Zane goes, these things are in my eyes, they're killing me. I'm no good at the voice. How long are they gonna believe I've turned Sith? And Zachamor's like, it helps if that they already do. And then of course you've got Griff. He's like Griff's yeah, classic Griff. Like he's always flicking Zane crap. And I love that. He's like, "More are stolen, Sith boy. Act like he's swallowing a bug. I mean, <laughs> there's all these little tiny little things that go on and stuff with these two characters that I love. But when we get to Hazen's character, I really enjoyed the way that, that Ching captures him. Like at that point, you start to really kind of figure out, whoa, um, I think this guy is the guy I need to be paying more attention to here. And when you watch what's going on between him and Zane's master, Lucian, Lucian becomes more he becomes more a tool than ever before. And, and even that's kind of a, a false like like a tool almost is used in a good way for everyone. In this case, it's like he's just a specific tool for Hazen. And Hazen is just using him at his discretion to get everything done. And I love the way that that's playing out. And I love the reaction from Lucian's character. I didn't want this, Quillen. I mean, there's, I mean, he's in total denial over everything. And the fact that that plays so big to the end of this entire arc really was something that i got profound enjoyment from i i don't know there was something about that that you know that the one jedi that seemed to kind of kickstart everything in the end kind of had the carpet pulled out from under him and the uh the humble stick hit across his eyes
0: yeah, It's interesting some of the, the 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 very brief little twists in here that we get for instance we get the hint here of something that lucian's going to say quite a bit later as well um that when zane tries to explain hey you know, leave Griff alone when when Lucian is ready to kill them and Hazen's the one saying, no, wait, you know, we need to take him uh, to Krinda. But, well, she's indisposed right now, so I'll deal with the boy. Um We get the hint there of, oh, wait, what's going on with Crinda, Why is she unable to see him? We see Lucian's anger over the idea that, you know, you know the prophecy. I won't let Sane anywhere near my mother, which is going to play a role as we continue on with this arc. Uh, and we have Lucian. When Zane is trying to explain, as I was alluding to there for a moment before I got sidetracked a little bit, because there's so many little hints here, um, trying to explain, look, I, this wasn't the real mirror talisman, the real one, uh, was destroyed, presumably he thinks, by the Mandalorians, uh, it created rat ghouls, it took control of Celeste Morn, she begged me to kill her, but I couldn't, you know, we, he didn't get the point to tell her, tell him, yeah, we stuck her inside one of those little obliette things, and then we think she was destroyed with the surface of the planet, but she actually wasn't, blah, blah, blah. Um, Lucian starts going off on him about how he, you know, as a Padawan, could never do what was necessary. So just, I mean, he's still in this whole, you know, blaming Zane for everything along the way. Um, I like the idea that this covenant was not just their own little secret circle, that the secret circle had its tentacles much deeper into the Jedi Order, but that this was something that Lucian, at least where he was aware of it, knew this only as something to help protect the society. Um, it's very much like Hydra uh, within S.H.I.E.L.D., if you've been watching uh, yeah. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or anything like that, any of the, the recent Marvel stuff. Uh, I don't think at this point that's much of a spoiler, given that we're talking like about half a season or more ago. Um, but it's got that deep-rooted, uh, you know, we were there to have our own uh, machinations type of thing going on. Um, I will also say that Hazen here definitely shows himself as much more of a threat before we get to even the end of the issue when we see what he looks like. He reminds me very much of uh, Gabriel slash Dracula from the more recent Castlevania games, the Castlevania Lords of Shadow games, uh, where he's voiced by Robert Carlisle, who I guess you best know these days as Rumpelstiltskin on Once Upon a Time. Um, he really has that Dracula type, uh, almost Nosferatu type look to him on purpose in this case. Like he's He's a much more corrupted individual than we were led to believe. Like before, oh, well, it could have just been shadows that made him look like that. No, no, he really does look very Dracula-esque in that sense. Uh, the question of how he blows up the sky bridge and turns the Republic against uh, the Jedi, that was something that at the time was like, wait, what? But we very quickly find out why that's the case in the next issue. We were setting up a lot of questions at this point. Um... Frankly, the biggest question I have as we get to the very end is, wait a second, where did the helmet come from? Why is it that Hazen looks like he's dressed in armor at this point when only some of it appeals, appears to have been beneath his cloak all along? Um, but I think we're just as, supposed to assume that he's able to grab it from where he kept it safe right for this meeting uh, while everything was going on anyway. Um, that frankly, you know, all hell was breaking loose and he took advantage of that because he's been waiting for this moment and planning for it for so long. Of course, he has his gear nearby. Very cool though, I I think... It's hard to say. Um, at the time and even now, I think it's kind of a masterstroke to make Hazen be the one behind everything. Because he was there, seated in, right in plain sight. We even got the sense that he could order Lucian around at times, and yet I don't think we ever put his, him together as the mastermind behind everything. It was always that sense that Lucian was, but the more we learned of Lucian, the less and less it seemed like he had the clout or the ability to be that mastermind. On the other hand, I do remember when this was first released that we had a lot of fans out there saying, What? Really? Seriously? It's freaking Hazen? Because I think they were expecting the mastermind to be much more in our face. To have it not be such a twist and a surprise that it was this character we thought was a minor character throughout that wound up being the one controlling it. And I can sort of see that. We got the sense that the Covenant itself uh, under Lucian was really the one that was the enemy throughout the entire series. But I think once you get to about halfway to Vindication, the groundwork really was starting to be laid for Lucian not being able to be the mastermind and for Hazen to be someone who would be a character we would learn more about later because he started to show up with more frequency and with more authority. Um, so I'm not sure that I would go entirely along with those who said, wait a second, this was kind of a cop-out to make it him because it really hadn't built up to it. I think it did build up to it, but I'm not sure we would have seen the buildup uh, in some respects unless we were going back and rereading it. It's a lot like the second half of Knights of the Old Republic. There's some reveals that happen late as we get towards Issue number 45 and 50 or so that we realize later have been seeded throughout this entire series. But unless you're rereading and know to look for it, it's very easy to miss them. Um, again, that's why I would constantly consider John Jackson Miller, JJM, to be very much like JMS, Joe Michael Straczynski, who did Babylon 5, in that his seeding is often very subtle. And yet the payoff generally tends to work. Um And it's something you can enjoy more on a second viewing, or in this case, a second reading.
1: Indeed, and he plays with prophecy well. They both do. I mean, you know, the prophecy of the five was something that was very interesting. And, And when Hazen's like, or rather the fleet works for me, visions is the past. The prophecy of the five is fulfilled. Let the fire of truth rain down. And the prophecy of the five, that was one that stands in the light, one that stands in the darkness one from the light standing in the darkness and one from the darkness standing in the light and one that stands apart from all. And, you know, as the story progressed, uh, you know, thinking about that and stuff, especially on the rereads, you know, it was kind of like, well, I wonder how many different ways that could have played. Cause most prophecies in star Wars, especially legends are very flexible. And I love the fact that, that they allow that they leave just enough mystery involved that you kind of get what the writer intended but at the same time leaves it open enough that you can interpret it in your own way if you needed to. And I liked that that direction as we go forward and, and, and how it plays in with Griff's character, especially as we get into the next few issues, just tantalized me to beyond relief.
0: That brings us into the next issue, which is mostly flashback. Bong Dezo is doing the art. So everyone looks a little bit different at this point. Um, as if in some respects, like, um, excuse me, do you remember what the characters were wearing last time? Um, but we begin very briefly on the Drey Estate during uh, this battle that's going on with the blasting of the Republic ships down onto the Jedi and everything. Um, and we get Zane saying, Lucian, what's going on? Who is this guy? Hazen, my family steward, a retainer, a flunky. You two should have a lot in common. He's a failure too. And we get this flashback or a series of flashbacks that make up the rest of the issue. Now this series has been built in a lot of ways on the idea of not letting the Sith War happen again. The Sith War, of course, was shown back in Tales of the Jedi. Uh, Dark Lords of the Sith and the Sith War making up that particular arc. We start here about ten years or so prior to that, and we see Hazen basically getting his butt kicked uh, by this uh, Nautilin pirate, which is interesting to see her be Nautilin, because, of course, when Tales of the Jedi was being written, Nautilins didn't exist because it was a species created for Kit Fisto by George Lucas. Um, But this Nautilin pirate named Dosa, is basically beating the living crap out of Hazen. Hazen seems to have had repeated run-ins with her, uh, with himself as a Padawan, or as an apprentice, and sure enough, every single time she manages to escape. Then, of course, sweeps in, you know, the dashing and handsome, almost in a Rhett Butler overdone sort of way, Barrison Dre, that is Lucian's father, of course, before Lucian is born, saving the day and they he's able to take Hazen back to the family estate where they're having a big ceremony where various Jedi students are becoming Jedi Knights for the very first time uh they're all there with uh uh, Barrison's, uh family members, including uh the Adaskas, who of course are tied into the family financially and such um shocked shocked they say at the fact that Barrison wants to be a Jedi rather than leading his family fortune at this point, but he's put everything into the Dre Trust, which we've seen before. Uh, we meet Master Hulus, who is blind, who is the Jedi Master who trained Barrison and Hazen, and Krinda. Krinda is one of three daughters of Hulus who have also joined the ranks of the Jedi. And Barrison and, and Krinda are apparently romantically involved at this point, Hazen wants to be with her, but can't be. Kind of the, the constant man on the outs, the constant extra wheel, or I guess extra repulsor lift emitter, or whatever you might say in Star Wars. Um, no matter what he says, he can't seem to really get her attention uh, in most respects. Um, she, in fact, has done an interview with Master Vodo and is going to join him on Osus very, very soon. Uh, of course, tying into what we got with Bodo and Exar Kun and so forth back in *Tales of the Jedi*. Figured that she was just, you know, uh, off camera, off panel during those sequences. We never actually got to see her studying with them, but she was presumably there. Um, they go to Arca Jeth's Praxium, Arca Jeth's Jedi Academy, essentially. Arca Jeth, of course, being the one that's teaching uh, Ulick and Tot and Kay in *Tales of the Jedi*. Of course, this is taking place prior to that. And we find that Krinda, Krinda Hulus, gets to be a Jedi Knight. And so does Barrison. But Hazen does not. Uh, the Jedi have made their judgments. And no, he doesn't get to become a Jedi Knight. He's never really pushed himself. He's never really given of himself. He's almost sort of ridden on the coattails of the success of Krinda and Barrison. And to him, this is a great injustice. That he's the poor boy, and he doesn't get to be a knight. But Barrison does. And he starts throwing out... Uh, a lot of uh, accusations, essentially, that Barrison basically bought his way into the Jedi and bought his way into being a knight and perhaps did the same for Krinda. but while he bought his way into Hazen getting training, he's not buying Hazen's way into becoming a knight as well. Whereas Barrison's like, "Uh, no, he would never try to influence a Jedi like that. That's why there's the Dre trust. That's why he's not taking personal control of his wealth. Uh, he's not going to try to to manipulate the Jedi like that. And it's when Hazen suggests that Barrison bought Krinda, that it was his wealth that drew her to him instead of to Hazen. That's when uh, Barrison finally just punches him a good one and decides, you know what, I owe your parents. Your family's been serving my family for a very long time. Uh, I'm not going to step in with the Jedi Order. That's not my place. But maybe there's a way you can still serve the family as a pilot or something else. Um, so it keeps him with the Dre family. We jump then to Toprara, another flashback, but it's ten years later. It's during the Sith War, it's during the events of uh, the second-to-last mini-series of Tales of the Jedi. And at this point, Barrison is leading the take-back of Toprara and taking the war to the Sith under Exar Kun, uh, who at this point is now falling back towards Yavin, we find. Uh, so it's in the last issues of that series. But Hazen is essentially there as a retainer to the family, and he's more or less burying the dead who aren't Jedi, and building a giant funeral pyre for the Jedi who have died. Um, but Dosa is there as well, supposedly working alongside Dre's troops, only actually she's there working for the Sith. And uh, she's able to tempt Hazen uh, about, you know, what do you want? You know, not what the Dre's want, what do you want? You're basically a droid with a restraining bolt. What are you gonna do? And he wants Barrison's life essentially, uh, to live his life. And she's able to come up with a plan of how to play this to make it happen. We find them inside caverns very shortly thereafter as Hazen is leading the Jedi supposedly in search of Dosa who supposedly can lead them to the last of the Sith bases on the planet. Hazen gets ahead and the idea is that they're supposed, he's supposed to lead them into a trap and Dosa is going to blow up the Jedi and she certainly does. She sets off an explosion that kills Barrison and the other Jedi with him, but not while letting Hazen get to safety. So Hazen is partially blown up in the process, and he soon awakens with Sith cybernetics as part of his body for the lower parts of both of his legs uh, and for his right arm at this point. Uh, he's been treated by Doc Uberla, who is this Sith uh, alchemist, essentially, and He's got all kinds of stuff on him. This thing that goes around his waist, this red belt-looking thing that we wind up seeing on him uh, at when he revealed himself in the previous issue, and as we see him in the present, it's called the Yoke of Seeming. Very cool Sith artifact, very cool thing for him to have gotten here as part of this deal. Basically, it causes the living, the living force to flow past him, like a stream flowing around a rock. So it won't affect any Jedi forecasts of the future, which, of course, is something that Krinda specializes in. Um, the perceptions of him will be clouded, and his intentions will be clouded. He can walk among them, and no one will realize how twisted he actually is, nor his dark intentions. Rather than working with Dosa and them, though, he simply kills them and uses this for his own ends. Uh, a while later, we see another flashback going forward. Um, actually, to right around the time um, that the, the Jedi seers of this new class are actually uh, the ones who become the Covenant, essentially, or the key group of the Covenant, um, are making some of their early predictions, we see Hazen reporting in to Corinda. Um, You know, the new class was right. The Library of Chandrilla did uncover a Sith text. Uh, the Shadow Agent disposed of it there. Uh, the Economic Circle was right. Bing, bing, bing. Van Jervalus... Does have a breakthrough naval system in the works. The designs we obtained confirmed it. Our trust will seek a controlling interest in order to further our and further fund our activities. Uh, and of course, uh, her son Lucian has now arrived on Terrace um, to set up that new school there in order to uh, continue the covenant's activities and continue their own search for the Muir Talisman, which he believes that Zane, his own student, um, will leave him plenty of time to do because his student basically isn't likely to succeed all that much. But the we're seeing the seeds here of future events, including how it is they get a hold of the controls for the Vanger chain that's going to allow him to use the gauntlet to take control of the Republic fleet and turn on the Jedi like we saw in the last issue. Um, we still find that uh, he can't get close to Krinda. Not really. She appreciates him and what he's done but not anything as far as, you know, where life could have taken them uh, from back then. All she's really focused on at this point is the future. Only the future. Um, But in a sense, so has Hazen. I've only thought of the future, too. And we jump back to the present where he's standing amid the blasts coming down. A very cool pose, lightsaber in the air. And now it has arrived. So we get an issue here that sort of takes a break from the main action, except the first and last pages but gives us the origin of this twisted being that Hazen has become both physically and mentally, and now we know why he's doing what he's doing. Um, He is the kind of villain we would expect in Star Wars, someone whose personal failings and greed and lust for things he cannot have have turned him into a monster, very much like the selfish love of Anakin.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, that panel, too, is is a glorious panel. Uh, I love the look of it. And there's another moment where Bongo really nails it. Corinda, when she's introduced, she's like the only character that seems like Brian Ching came in and and wrote up the panel for it. I mean, even Hazen looks better than he does in any other one in that part. Uh, another panel, though, that I liked was uh, when we see on um, Tapara 10 years later and you see uh, Barrister and he's it's the pose that you see earlier in the, in the trade paperback of Lucian's dad and all the Jedi holding their lightsabers up, except for this time he's got it kind of going from uh, left to right instead of straight up and down. And all the Jedi seem to kind of have smiles on their face, which seems a little at odds in the middle of a war, but the fact that, you know, Barrister's saying, you know, Fellow knights, the day is ours. With the courage you've all shown today, we can soon put the Sith war to an end, and we can all get back to our families. I know I want to get back to mine. And, I, you know, I mean, obviously they're about to win the war, so everybody's happy and smiling, but it did kind of throw me off. Like, you're in the middle of this war, you got all this stuff going on and that's what's happening. So it was kind of a little odd to see Barrison saying that. Um, But I did like the fact, though, that they were treating the Jedi bodies different. That was kind of interesting, that they were just burning those. Like, why not just burn them all? But the fact that they were specifically burning only the Jedi was something that was a little curious. Uh, And When Dosa shows up, the weapon she had was kind of cool. It was like she was holding on like this little piece of metal or something, and there was this weird energy blade coming off of it. But it wasn't like a lightsaber. It, It was more like, I don't know, like a pointed triangle of jagged energy.
0: Did that not remind you of Psylocke from Marvel?
1: Yeah, Psylocke from Marvel, or I was thinking like the early, like 1984 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle toys, like the secondary weapons that came with them looked a lot like that as well. <laughs> but yeah, Psylocke was definitely something, because it's got that same color to the energy and stuff, but it, there's definitely a broken jaggedness to it, which was kind of cool as well. I like that. And I actually, I thought the seduction of Hazen worked very well. Like, I, I don't know, for for me, that really worked out, and seeing the way that they had him, you know, he's like... Dosa, wait, I'm not out of the way, I'm not yet out, Oh! the way that played. And then, it's of course, it starts out with him yelling, no. And the doctor's like, the turncoat awakes, I gather. Is he in more pain? And Dosa's like, oh, no, Doc, Ubra. He just saw his reflection is all. What did you do? What did you do to me? And I love, you know, for Bonzo style art, Hazen looking like this it actually serves the character like it really makes him look messed up. I mean, granted if he wasn't blown up, he might have just looked the same with his skin and all that stuff. Anyway, but at this case like it plays well. Uh, you know, when you mentioned the yoke of seeming, I wasn't sure if that was the belt or if that was the hand, uh the whole arm, you know, the way it was it was described. But either way, it works and I like the way that that, you know, Dosa she keeps going on and on. She's like you hear? You can walk among them and no one will know how disgusting you are unless you want them to. Of course, we'll always know, won't we, Sweets? There's more. Additional artifacts might unlock other hidden powers if you can find them. Find them? Find them how? Hazen says. We'll help you. You got, but you got to help us, Sweets. You've got to be quits with the Jedi. Nobody else wants you. And if they need the real you, nobody ever will. I'm not a Jedi Dosa. And I'm not a Sith. I'm going to be something more. And she's like, what, what What are you? And he's got his hands on each side of her temples. And he's like, You promised me a life, and now I'm going to take it and yours. Like, I like the concept of, you know, I'm not a Jedi and I'm not a Sith. Like, at this era, there's a few characters that we've seen that, you know, in KOTOR 2, we had Kira. Uh, and I, I don't know. I mean, later we see Jason kind of doing something similar before he decides, No, I'm just going to be a Sith. Ah, forget it. But, In the EU, in Legends, there was at one point this concept that there might be something more. That the Jedi might evolve into something beyond even the Jedi, you know? I mean, and it never came to fruition. It was always kind of one of those things, like, every time Legends, at that point, every time the EU would start to step that way, something from the canon story would be like, "Eh, we got to bring that back, you know? I I know in the New Jedi Order with Veger and stuff, or Veger, however people want to say her, she, you know, had that whole kind of mystery as well. And people were running with that. They're like, well, you know, I don't quite believe what she's saying and stuff. So I don't know. It's one of those things that it's one of those mysteries of the EU and legends that that always worked with me. But you'd always see it kind of retcon, you know, with Vajera, she was like, oh, there's no dark side. And then later they were like, oh, well, no, it turns out she was a Sith. And, you know, they were always kind of bringing those things back. It's like these concepts were always being introduced. And, and I love the concepts. But as the overall mythos of the EU would go on, they would always kind of ratchet it back to be more in line with what Lucas had on the films. And that was never the case on the films. So, you know, that was one of those things about the divide of canon and legends that I was always excited about. But since we're not getting more legend stories, those stories could never be told anyway. So that's a separate side rant.
0: That brings us to issue three as things get back to the present. uh, We very quickly... Jump aboard the Swiftshire, where we have a uh, Karath freaking out at this point because the the Republic ships are firing down onto the Jedi, firing on Coruscant as opposed to at enemies of Coruscant. Um, of course, there's nothing they can do about it because it's the Banjebalas chains fault, which of course at this point is linked into the gauntlet being worn by Hazen. Karath uh, orders the ship basically abandoned of all uh, non-essential personnel so that maybe they can destroy it, though it winds up not being necessary by the time the story ends anyway. Uh, back on the surface, we get a quick explanation for that, which we already sort of got in the flashback from Hazen, who is telling uh, the others, telling uh, Zane and Lucian about the whole Vandervala's chain and everything, and how they got control of it. And he talks about how uh, it's going to keep the Jedi at bay for as long as we require, and this is where Lucian finally... You see that he's made the tipping point against Hazen, you know, wrong pronoun, Hazen, you've gone mad and I'm going to stop you. And we get, on that panel and later, an unusual thing in the artwork of this issue, we are seeing the force being used in a visual way. When the dark side essentially is being used, we have these weird red, uh, bright light type of things going on to show us that action And as we go further with this issue and the next, we see the light side being used in the same way, except when that's done, it's blue, which is interesting, but odd. It works for the story, but of course it leads you to wonder why isn't it like that in other places. Um, We find out that the gauntlet itself is the gauntlet of Kresh the Younger, like Ludo Kresh, but the Younger, apparently. Um, And while he's wearing it, that's the one that's got the controls built into it, uh, no one can touch him without his consent. And when Lucian tries with his lightsaber to slash him, Lucian gets essentially blasted backwards. Um Some Jedi burst in, only to wind up being blasted with what looks like force lightning from Hazen. Uh, and So at this point, yeah, there's some trouble. We get a moment in silhouette. Uh, it's sort it's kind of a blink and you'll miss it because we're focusing on Zane and Griff in the foreground. We get a brief instance of... uh Hazen slicing one of the Jedi in half uh, that's coming at him with his red lightsaber. Think about it is that Lucian still doesn't want to work with Zane uh, to stop this danger. Uh, he still sees Zayn as a potential danger. Um, and he's still he's still ragging on him for not taking out Celeste more. It's Like, you know, that the fact that she wasn't a danger doesn't matter. The potential danger was enough. Uh, you have to be able to strike even when innocent. And, of course, that's when Zane interrupts him because that's exactly what he did in killing the Padawans and such. Um, it is Hazen, though, that's trying to get them to work together and work for and with him. He reveals the nature of that prophecy. As, as Mark quoted earlier, one for the darkness, one for the light. One from the darkness stands in the light, while one from the light stands in the darkness. The last one stands apart from all. Uh, the prophecy of the five. And he says that essentially that Lucian is the one standing in darkness because of what he has helped uh, bring about here and whatnot. And he's going to be the one to supposedly become a Sith and train a Sith line of followers to follow Hazen. Um, Perhaps as uh, Darth Luzon, uh, Darth Sion, which is a nice tip of the hat, though of course he's not going to actually be Darth Scion later, he turns away from that possible path, but it certainly hints that name for the future Sith Lord that we're going to get in Knights of the Old Republic to the Sith Lords, um, that Zane will be the one in the light, in this case, uh, bringing the Jedi to follow Hazen, that Hazen is the one standing apart from all because he's something different, just kind of a blend of Sith and Jedi in a sense here, using the Force without allegiance to either. The one from the light that stands in darkness is referring to Cranilla, um, who, of course, is blind, hence, in the darkness. And the one from the darkness that stands in the light is Griff, who is someone who is a criminal, a slime, so to speak, but who has chosen to work with the light at this point, which is kind of a shock. But, of course, uh, this is something, uh, despite all the different relics and whatnot and how Hazen has managed to use the yoke of Simi to mask his intentions and everything, no matter how much power he has and how tempting the offer might be, to be powerful, Lucian doesn't want it. When it finally comes down to it, he really has been trying to save the galaxy from the Sith. He doesn't want to become one. He doesn't want to work with Lucian, or he doesn't want to work with uh, Hazen, but he's got to find a way to stop it. Um, at this point, Cornilla, for her part, runs for it. Um, she runs off to try to protect Krinda, who is somewhere in the palace. Remember, or not the palace, the, the Dre Estate, which is basically a palace. Because uh, remember, she wasn't down there. You know, she was supposedly, you know, doing something else when Hazen came down, and we don't know what yet. Last time we saw her was in a flashback. Uh, Zane runs off to basically tell Griff to follow her to try to get her to possibly help take down Hazen, and Lucian puts his lightsaber in front of Zane. Uh, Well, takes a lightsaber. It's a Sith lightsaber that Hazen has tossed to him when making his offer. Um, but he puts that lightsaber in front of Zane, you know, I told you before, I'm not letting you near my mother. So even now, he believes the prophecy at least enough that he doesn't want Zane to be anywhere near his mother for fear of something happening to her. We finally find out that something's already happened to her. When Griff finally gets to Crinda's room, he finds Quinilla uh, essentially crying over what looks like her casket, only it's not a casket. He finds out that, no... This is actually one of those Sith Obliettes. It's very much like what they put Celeste Morn into. Um, that the she had, she'd had a stroke. She was weak. Um, she was nearing death, and Quinella thinks that she's actually died. Only Griff is the one to realize. No, that's not really the case. She actually is still alive. This is, has her in stasis. We can get her out, and she can maybe solve the situation. Um, in the process, some revelations get made about some of the. Uh, the more elements of the prophecy and of Zane's comments from back in commencement. Um she says that essentially uh th- Quenilla, that is, that this prophecy is leading to the deaths of all of them, right? Ranate, fell, Zane killed them all, only no, it really wasn't Zane. The person in the red spacesuit, that was actually Griff. Everybody wore the spacesuit at some point. Uh, he just wore it because he needed a place to sleep, but it didn't fit. Um, and it was actually him that blew up the bombs that wound up killing Rana He was the one who stole Felon's lightsaber, allowing him to be killed. Uh, and with Zamar, you know, Zamar is still out there at this point, but it's part of the plan. Um, or part of the plan is supposed to be um, uh, to use that diversion. We will find that Fel- that uh, uh, Zamar has been, or is about to be, I forget where it takes place unless I skipped over it in the summary there. But when the, the Republic is blasting down, Zamar is with a group of Jedi who wind up getting blown up by the blasts and whatnot, or by some yeah. of the explosives outside.
1: That was the end of last issue, yeah. yeah. He was like, not a bomb, it's the
0: fleet. Right. Yeah, that was a good spot too. So he's out of there. Um and you know, it's like, you know, plenty of people wore it. You know, you tend to take prophecies and kind of try to force it to fit would you say doesn't? But he's like, well, at least I know Zane's prophecy failed. The one who confesses lives. Zamar confessed. He'd made a deal to basically protect Krinda. She gets immunity. He gets punished. Uh, and he's gone. All well, these early Griff's like, yeah, about that. Those were my words. And he basically said all that stuff that Zane said about, you know, the one who confesses lives and he's coming for you and all that. I just basically told him to say it to scare the living crap out of you so you would back off. You know, if you really thought that Zane would have done that, would have gone on a killing spree to kill all of you, you never really knew him at all. Um, and of course, she's shocked by all of this and the fact that, you know, it's, they've been essentially led by a lie or a fear that created a lie. Um, but Griff frees her. Down below, Zane and Lucian are battling through the Force. That's where we see some of that blue Force light looking stuff that's being drawn here that we, don't really hardly ever see anywhere else at this point. Um, Lucian basically is, is not willing to work with him. He says, if there's even a chance the prophecy is right, he won't let any harm come to his. And as he says, mother, there's Griff leading her down the stairs. Um, she gets cradled in Lucian's arms and basically says that in one of her visions, she saw Lucian killing his students. Uh, and then I believe eventually him as well. Uh, when you called in that vision from the rogue moon, we were told, but oh, we told you to bring the students here so we can understand what the vision meant. But that night I had another vision. I saw your circle kill them. I wanted to call you, but my headache had been getting worse. I tried. I tried to move and I couldn't. Presumably that's where the stroke came in. And there was Hazen. And he was saying, I couldn't die yet, that it was too soon, and he put me in this box of his, and it was agony. I lived the moment of the Padawan's deaths again and again. The only thing that got me through is that I knew you would never do something like that. Tell me you didn't do it, Lucian. Please tell me you didn't. And he explains that he didn't, but he ordered it to be done. Um, and, that, and she counters that the mission isn't worth the lives of children. Wonders who taught him that. And he flat out says, you did. You know, Children come in, we send them against the Sith. They devote and we sacrifice their lives to your mission. It's what you wanted, or at least it's what I thought you wanted. And finally, she winds up dying in his arms, recognizing that she was wrong in what she did, in a sense. Uh, At least in what she instilled in him, and he was wrong in what he did. But in his case, it at least appears that he's ready to kill Zane and Griff, because it was Griff that took her out of stasis, And it was only taking her out of stasis that let her die. Granted, she would have any time, presumably, she came out of stasis. But in this case, Griff is the one at fault. And Griff better start running because it looks like Lucian is coming after him. You killed her. I'll hold him off as long as I can, Zane says. Run! As part three draws to a close with one issue to go.
1: I really enjoyed the intensity of that scene specifically. I mean, when she dies, Lucian looks back at at Griff and Zane. He's like, she's gone. She's gone. And Griff's like the sithy stasis thing shattered when it opened. I guess it was a prototype or something. And Lucian looks back. She was in stasis. And you took her out? But she was already dying when she went into it. I didn't mean to. And Zane at this point, it's like, I really, I don't know, something about Zane and Griff, like I've, I've just dug these two's character. But at this moment, it's like zane's looking out for his best friend and and i really like that at this you know the way that the relationship has came to this point you know and and it continues up through but you know griff start running now and that's when lucian turns and he ignites his lights you killed her like he said i'll hold him as long as i can't run and you know i've got the trade so the next panel i'm just like oh my god you know not knowing where it ends i thought the next panel was where it ended which is a great start for the next issue but Holy cow, the intensity of that buildup is just so great. When you were mentioning, you know, about Griff talking about how, you know, he was the one in the prophecy and that I love the fact that when it gets all over with, Griff even pats himself on the head by, you know, nice play, Griff. But even Gorilla or whatever her name was, she goes, the Snivian, I could never read you. But at least I know Zane's prophecy failed. The one who confesses lives and Zackabar confessed and he's gone I love the way that Griff turned out to be like the same type of linchpin for everything as Hazen was, you know, the fact that he couldn't be read in the force played up immensely. And I had totally spaced that at this point, you know, I, I, it just went so past my head that I didn't even, I didn't even catch it at all. When we had the, uh, the flashbacks to, uh, hazen and stuff in the earlier one though i did want to comment that i like the fact that hazen and and Drula or whatever her name was kind of had that zane and griff feel to them that was also another cool thing that i liked a lot uh there's a cool moment too though when hazen you know they mentioned that the gauntlet of Crest doesn't let anyone touch him when Lucian touches him and gets bounced back And then he attacks him with the lightsabers. You see his hands get crisped and bloodified, which later plays in because his hands are all bloody and all these other scenes and stuff. But I like how when the lightsaber gets tossed to him, the Sith one by Hazen, he doesn't want to wear it or he doesn't want to use it at first. But then when, you know, Zane goes to go after Corinda, he's like, no, I'm not going to let you go. And then he uses it. I like the fact that into a sense, like, his own twisted thinking has has forced him now to pick up the weapon and use it. I mean, it, it's all 100% wrong, but I like, again, the way that the story is pushing these characters. You know, it's kind of like, it, it's like the development of these characters has forced them into a role that they cannot escape these events, that they're forced to play their parts no matter what. And I, 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 that's why John Jackson Miller is just a writer that I love so much. And the fact that he is branched into the novels, that he was not left behind when Dark Horse Comics was snipped from, you know, Star Wars as it was. I would love to see more authors of comics, you know, like maybe John Ostrander and stuff like that get a chance to write books in the new canon. You know, I, I just love the fact that that these guys are able to make that jump, that they weren't all just left behind. You know, I mean, John Jackson Miller's work is something that has created a huge era within my EU that I love so very much. And I'm just so tickled that he's been invited into the new canon to continue to play.
0: Yeah, this issue was a great one. I mean, just the, the revelations that come to pass, the fact that the uh, the prophecy and Zane's comments from back in commencement, they both played a role in where this all was going, Uh, Lucian's uh, kinda comeuppance moment, where we see even Krinda wind up essentially getting uh, punishment for what has happened in a sense, at least from a storytelling standpoint, as opposed to actually being punishment, Um, and we find that she's been seemingly out of it throughout. I mean, the Rogue Moon prophecy, yeah, she was around for that, but throughout most of what we've seen since then, she's been out of play. Uh, And instead, what we're getting here is uh, Hazen's twisted version of what she, in theory, would want being passed along to Lucian, as Lucian was drawn to do darker and darker things in pursuit of of what he thought was the right thing to do with the prophecy and such. Uh, Very cool. And of course, that last bit there, uh, as he's going super angry, super kind of sithy there, uh, you killed her, that's the big freak-out moment. Uh, We will find that not all of this pursuit... Of Griff over the death of Krinda is real, though. Uh, this part, he really is angry, he really is raging, he really is going to kill Zayn and Griff if he can. We will find that this winds up working in their favor as we move into part four.
1: You know, one thing, though, that I really thought up until this issue that Krinda was going to be part of it, I was not expecting her to not have an influence over things in the negative you know the fact that they found a way to redeem her character and i like how she says to her son you know face the future with humility at the end what was her last words i thought that was kind of cool totally something i wasn't expecting uh karath or karath or however you want to say his name when he's freaking out at the beginning uh you had mentioned i love he has this line he says how many ups and downs can one career have and i i thought that was a funny one because for that character like all he's been concerned with is is his career, so it's kind of interesting to see, you know, that side of him, which which kind of leads you into, well, okay, that's why he does what he does in the Kotor games. Aha! Uh, and then, you know, the whole the buying of the uh, Van chain. I, you know, I had the question: Would that might be the situation that most people think of when they think about, you know, I don't want to slave my ship to anyone else's ship.
0: <laughs> we pick up with Lucian attacking Zane. A great image there uh, of that part of the lightsaber duel. They continue fighting. And Zane's trying to reason with him. You know, I won't let you hurt Griff. You know, he said it was a Sith chamber, a torture device. You know, it it was probably torturing her. Yeah, well, whatever it was was keeping her alive. That's what matters to Lucian. As they're battling, they wind up seeing a video, essentially a recording, where you've got, you know, Hazen using the Force lightning and whatnot, fighting the other Jedi as they came in. It says, you know, I ran from my teacher. Why can't you? And he says, you know, it's too late. It's all ruined. It's too late. And he even made the comment, you know, I can't change my future. Until finally Zane says, you know, fine. Go ahead. Kill Griff. Kill me. Kill everybody. Become Darth whatever. Be someone else's pawn. If you've done it all your life, it's what you're best at. And it seems like that moment is what finally gets through to him. Yeah. Because we then shift to outside where we see... Um, that Hazen has killed, it's actually not even Jedi, it looks like, that he's just killed. It's the guys he's sent to go guard the various Sith artifacts and whatnot and bring them from where the High Council had put them, their own stash of them, essentially, for safekeeping, to him so he can then use them in his conquest of the galaxy and so forth. His plan, essentially, is that uh, the Jedi will be mostly wiped out. Now that the Jedi High Council's Sith artifacts have been taken, He can order the attack to destroy the Jedi headquarters, the Jedi Temple. In destroying that, he thinks, it'll leave the Jedi without leadership until Lucian, the survivor, declares that Krinda, who of course is dead now, has formed an emergency council to lead the Jedi based out of the Dre estate. And it would bring the Jedi Covenant, the regular Jedi, all essentially together, ruled by or commanded by the Dreys. But, not really, because just like he's been manipulating them all along, Hazen will be manipulating them behind the scenes. Uh, even with Krenda dead and Lucian either twisted or perhaps dead if he winds up having to kill him. We pick up, though, from there with Griff running outside and being force-pushed through a railing and down onto the ground, followed very quickly by an enraged, or seemingly enraged, Lucian, you know, you killed my mother, Snivian, and here comes Zane to fight him. They continue fighting in front of Lucian, even though Grip is like, uh, hello, he's got more Sith artifacts, he's the enemy, what the hell, essentially. Uh, until finally, Lucian makes a lightsaber swipe that cuts the foundation out from a statue of his own father, which then falls and appears to crush him. And it looks like Zane is ready to kill him at this point. Um, It it certainly looks like he does kill him, but again, it's a feigned kind of thing here. Uh, There has been some planning involved before this scene started, but of course, we don't know that at this point. We're wondering if Zane has just killed his former master and if that's the end of all of it. Uh, It certainly looks like it.
1: Well, and it hey. played so well because of the fact of the Griff angle. I mean, Zane was committing it. Griff, get out of here. Griff, get out of here. I mean, that's what I was buying. I was like, the only way to save Griff is to kill your master. I did not get the whole planning part at this point.
0: And Griff, of course, isn't in on the planning, so he's certainly playing this out the way that, you know, he would, were it real. Um, it is kind of a, a very, very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Realistic death for Lucian. He's, Slammed down on by a big chunk of that statue and then supposedly uh, killed by Zayn. Presumably with Zayn stabbing down uh, from an angle that Hazen really can't see. But it certainly looks to the audience as if Lucian should be dead. And this is the well, moment at which uh, it, it basically it's, it breaks Hazen's control over the situation. Because Hazen steps in and basically wants Zayn to pledge himself to him to be that one in the light. Or heck, maybe even one in the darkness here. Um, another failed student joining him uh, in return for stopping the bombardment of Coruscant and such. Um, but he invites Zane to approach. Okay? By inviting him to approach, that allows him to pass through the protection that the Gauntlet of Kresh the Younger is affording him that's on his arm. This allows Zane to get close enough to reach up and grab the Gauntlet claiming to see a vision of the future, you know, oh, I have a vision of the future. You're not in it. He's able to then use his lightsaber to cut off the bottom half of Hazen's droid arm, which gets rid of the gauntlet itself. Uh, he then winds up uh, blasting Zane and Griff, uh, belief, well, Zane at least with force lightning, uh, as he's trying to save Griff, stand in front of Griff, and then Zane grabs Griff, and they're both force-thrown by Lucian far, far away. We'll see where they land in a moment. But in doing so, we were like, wait, who did that? Turns out it was Lucian. And my father would never hurt me, Hazen, and I would never let what he stood for fall. Not really. Zane's plan gave the two of us a chance to practice one of your own teachings. Uh, if the hand endangers the limb, strike it off. And he's picked up the fallen hand with the gauntlet on it. And he's not using the gauntlet itself, per se. He's using the controls on it, and he activates the control device so that the uh, the Republic ships, instead of blasting and destroying the Jedi Temple at this point, they blast the Dre Estate. And since Lucian is holding it. Lucian's going to manage to survive. Nothing else can touch him. Uh, It's not going to protect Hazen. Hazen's going to be blown to teeny tiny bits.
1: I missed that the first time through.
0: So we figure out where Zane and Griff went. They get thrown way across town to sludge bats. Mmm, how yummy. Uh, With a great line from Zane that kind of sums up the entire series. The Force does not want me dead. It doesn't want me happy, but it doesn't want me dead. And he finally reveals to Griff, yeah, it was all a plan, you know, that, that once he got through to Lucian, all that stuff was a distraction to try to get Zane close enough to be allowed within the protection of the gauntlet to be able to take the gauntlet back and finally bring down Hazen. And we get sort of what amounts to a double epilogue here. We find that the Republic is blaming everything that happened on a terrorist plot by Mandalorians, saying that the Drave family is a heroic family among the fallen, um, and Saul Careth is going out with a swift shirt sure to go after the Mandalorians and so forth once they get a new computer installed. Uh, we find out, essentially, um, that uh, the Padawans' families are going to be told the truth of what happened. Uh, the Jedi have paid off all the bounties on the members of the former Last Resort crew, including paying the Mumos for their part in everything. Uh, Alec slash Malik is now even more set... Um, on the idea of going after the Mandalorians, but the Jedi Order is more set against Jedi fighting in the war than ever, so that split is still there. Uh, Malak intends to be with them, still using the name Malak until there's an end to all the suffering from the war. Jeriel could go off on her own direction at this point, uh, even going off with Malak, perhaps, uh, but she instead intends to stick around for Roland, Roland in quotes, I suppose, Um because he won't take off his armor, of course, and he's stuck as as an outsider among the Republic. We will find there's much more to that later. Uh, as Griff says, you know, now serving another hopeless cause for Jerial. Uh Essentially, that wow, she was helping Zane, and now she's going to help Roland. Yeah, another helpless cause. Griff thinks he's going to be heading off in a completely different direction um, from Zane. He thinks Zane, at this point, is being welcomed back into the Jedi Order. So whatever. And he's trying to say his goodbye, and he gives Zane's old Padawan braid that he kept just in case, you know, in case there was a market for those later, gives it to Jeriel so that she can give it back to Zane. Only Zayn shows up dressed in black, very Anakin in Episode 3-looking Jedi-type attire, and it turns out that he basically told them no. The Jedi Council offered to take him back, to make him a knight. He said, nope, he's already got a job. The Jedi didn't help him when he needed them, Griff did. Um, They're so busy with other big worries that the little people slip through the cracks and it's only going to get worse and that's not why he wanted to be a Jedi. Besides, it's not just the Covenant that decides who lives and dies. The Jedi do it every day and that's not something he's good at uh, either. He's good at the rest of it perhaps, but not at deciding who lives and dies. So he decides to be a partner, essentially, uh, not a henchman, but a partner for Griff in whatever they decide to wind up doing next. Uh, Griff, for his part, wants to go back to loot to uh, the Dre estate and see if they can get access to the financial database somewhere within the wreckage here. But it looks like they're working together as a crew even now, despite the fact that Zane could have gone back to the Jedi like he wanted in the first place. Our second epilogue takes place somewhere else, where we find that uh, that Lucian, who survived thanks to the gauntlet, uh, but who no one really apparently knows survived at this point, hence them saying that the Drays were all lost as his heroic family and all, Um, he managed to save himself. And he, unbeknownst to anyone else, um, back with the Covenant, had been able to funnel some money away uh, to essentially create a private sanctum, a readout, a place where even if the Jedi Order itself were destroyed, um, they could bring up a new Jedi Order, so to speak, following a combination of his mother's teachings and his father's. Um, You know, they can't change what others will do in the future. They can change what they do, though, and choose a different role. He says that we cannot avert the prophesied doom, but we can survive it. And we will survive. We are few, but the Jedi ways will go on after the tribulations to come. I know this because I am the son of Krinda and and Barriss And at last, I can see my future. And quite appropriately, The little box to set up the next issue simply says next a new era begins because the first one in a sense is closed.
1: That second one, that's the one that got me, man. I was just like, wait, what is this group doing? What did John Jackson Miller have planned for these guys? You know, I mean, I got the sense with them that it was like, okay, here's the Lost tribe of the Jedi. You know, like, I don't know that that was probably the one thing that really threw me. I had, when I read through it the first time, I did not catch the idea that because Lucian was holding on to the gauntlet that he wasn't going to get hurt. I did catch the idea that had wanted that gauntlet for that reason, but it didn't dawn on me that, oh yeah, Lucian's got it. He's not going to get hurt. Uh, so I, and I must assume that because his body wasn't hurt, his eyes were fried out from the blast from it just being bright or something. I can't exactly, you know, cause he's like, I was, I was saved mostly. <laughs> like Wait, what? But I don't know. I mean, what what did you feel? Did you feel like that there was like something determined for this group, this what he calls it, uh, a a private sanctum, a redoubt, or is that is that he say it? a redoubt? Yeah, that far I don't know.
0: Um, I don't know. It makes me wonder if this is supposed to be where the Jedi are able to build back from uh, after the events we get in the Knights of the Old Republic video games. Because I mean, there comes a point where the Jedi are wiped out to a large degree, and there's very few left by the time we're getting into stuff with the second game. And since, of course, there's Mm -hmm. not a third game, we don't get to really see how that plays out. We get the Revan novel to carry on Revan's story and get a few hints of that. But aside from backstory from the Old Republic era and the MMO and the novels and comics and that such, um, that look back on this time, we don't quite know exactly how it is that the Jedi Order gets entirely rebuilt. So maybe this group was part of that. Or maybe there's just this separate Force tradition out there that we haven't really spent a lot of time with in the Legends continuity, and probably never will at this point, unfortunately. Um, you're right, that last one was certainly one that made me go, wow. And it really, it took, I think it was something in the letters pages later, for me to really buy into the idea that the whole Darth Scion was just a name drop, that Lucian's not somehow, someday going to be Darth Scion. That this really was him getting away from that path the way that he put it in the epilogue. As opposed to it being, well, he's gotten away from it for now. But eventually he would be Darth Sign. It's just the name will eventually wind up coming back. Um, I, I very much like the fact here that what we've got is what could have been a good end of the entire series. This could have been it. And it still would have been an awesome way to end it. Um, we don't get the Moo Moo Brothers. We don't get uh, Roland showing up in the story. Uh, we don't get Malik slash Alec. Uh, we basically just focus in on Griff and Zane. But in a lot of ways, that's where the story began in the first place, you know. And the conflict mm-hmm. does wind up being resolved with the help of Lucian. Lucian's story arc has ended here. Zane's is still going. He's hit another major turning point. But Lucian, for his part, got his full character arc we're pretty much done with the character at this point. Now, we can shift the character arcs for characters like Roland, uh, like Jeriel. or if we hadn't, we feel at least that there's a sense of closure in this issue that we don't need to worry about, really. Anyway, we don't need more of the story, but we are going to manage to get it and get some more depth to it. Uh, I must say, though, one of the things that's interesting to me is the parallel here that I'm assuming is unintentional given when this was written versus when the Clone Wars cartoon was being written. But Zayn's reason for not rejoining the Jedi. He was an outcast. He was falsely accused of something. He came back and when offered the chance to be a knight and stay with the Order, he's basically like, look, you didn't believe in me. You didn't trust me. You weren't there for me when I needed it. So screw you. I've got my own path. Isn't that exactly what Ahsoka did in Clone Wars Season 5? Falsely accused of something she didn't do. They weren't there for her. How could she trust herself? How could she trust them? She's got to go off on her own. The only difference is that's done in a sad sort of way, and here for Zane it's kind of like a triumph in that sense because he does have a support system to go back to, whereas Ahsoka does not. But I find it quite poignant at this point that of all the characters in Star Wars, the one who seems to at least at the end of one part of his journey match the most with Ahsoka was Zane Carrick. Um, I I love that aspect about the way this ends, that echo forward towards what we were going to see years later. Um, makes me wonder if there was even the slightest influence of this series on that, given that there were at least some people working on the Clone Wars, like Dave Filoni, who do tend to read the comics and the novels from time to time back then.
1: True that, you know, another little twist, you know, I had said, I wasn't quite, I wasn't in on the, the switch play on uh, Lucian and Zane's part. So when they go outside and they're in the courtyard and Lucian swings at Zane Zane ducks and you hear this crack as he hits the bottom of his father's statue. My father's statue! We, the blast have damaged the base! No, I won't let it fall! I won't let it! And then it comes crashing down. Like, that seemed like such a poignant death for him. Like, it, it felt justified. It felt like I, I, it felt perfect, you know, and then to have that twist like that for me was was one of the things that, that John Jackson Miller was really delivering the twist when they came for me. I, I did not know they was completely caught unaware and I loved it fist pumping. Yeah, you know, you would go to other forums. Other people, not so much. Some people knew what was coming. I get it on a read read. You know, there were subtle hints that were there. That, you know, and I mean, granted, I grabbed the comic, I would look through the panels of the art and all that stuff. Then I would go through it and then I would read it. And yet I still missed those subtle nuances my first time through. And it wasn't until I'd had the entire book series, comic series in this regard, read that I was able to go back. And at that point, then I was able to see the little hints for what they were. And I just. I don't know. That was one of the reasons why the Kotor series is one of my favorite comic series of all times. Because John Jensen Miller had that, that brilliant way of seeding it through. And you're 100% right, Nathan. I mean, when you, when you mentioned, you know, the, the, Babylon 5 aspect I mean it does have everything about it I mean when I I watched Babylon 5 I did I watched all the way up to the fifth season and I tell my friends when they watch it only watch the first four because that was all I cared about I honestly felt that fifth season damaged the franchise more than it did anything else I hated the way that one ended but up through seasons one through four Absolutely, man. It was the same exact kind of ride. I mean, it, it had all the delivery and all that kind of stuff. A very good, uh, you know, reference there to, to those that have seen that other show. If you like that show, this would be something you would really enjoy. It's not the same, but it has a lot of similarities.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, this was one of the, I mean, it is the best arc of Knights of the Old Republic. I would say it's what helps make Knights of the Old Republic one of the best Star Wars series, uh, I would say, of all time. Now, I would say, you know, in recent years or in Dark Horse's run, but really of all time to have this running at the same time that Legacy was running, which is my favorite Star Wars comic series of all time an absolute treat. This was sort of a golden age when it came to Star Wars comics, yeah. especially ones that told tales in their own eras that weren't beholden to a lot of other stories and can really do unusual things with their characters in a lot of ways what now the new story group canon is going to be able to do, because there aren't a lot of stories that they are beholden to at this point with their somewhat clean slate that they've got, with just the films of uh, The Clone Wars and Rebels to act as their foundation that we're now building off of with stuff like John Jackson Miller's A New Dawn and whatnot. So, uh, a great ending that turned out not to be an ending for the series. Definitely the highest point, though, that KOTOR ever reached.
1: Well, you know, and, and another thing to to address what you just said, I mean, a lot of fans out there feel that this series could easily be used in canon because it has nothing it's conflicting with to a degree. I mean, granted, you do have some elements where, you know, in the Vector arc, you see Koran Horn and a couple of the other Jedi, but visions of the future are always fluid and always in motion. So there's no reason why it couldn't have, you know, been addressing legends, but that future has now since changed. I mean... I, I like that aspect too. That you know, even though it is legends and it does not exist in canon, there is no reason why it couldn't. Uh, you know, uh, I just posted on our, our Facebook page that uh, Lucino had put up something along the similar lines, talking about canon and and the way it worked and how he doesn't exactly know, you know, the the whole differences of what is and isn't canon and how these things could find their way in. And you know, this is a story that that, that jumps right out as an example of that. I mean, there's nothing really that says it couldn't be canon if they were to choose to adapt it. Alright, and since we didn't cover the covers in our last issue, we're going to cover the covers from last issue plus this all-in-one trade paperback rundown. Uh, 29 was Knights of the Old Republic, Dark Secrets of the Jedi Covenant. And it's got Jarell, it's got Zane, it's got Griff, and it's got all the fi uh, I like the, the look of it. It's got a really cool blue to it. Kind of nice. Kind of enjoyable. Uh, moving from there into number 30, we've got a Jedi without mercy. And it's got the uh, big old Jedi furrowing guy standing over him with Zane on his back. It looks like he's got like either cut on his forehead or something. He's pulling at the guy's leg. Cause the guy's got his foot across Zane's chin. I like the dramaticness of the pose and stuff. You got the whole building up and fire uh, the, the sanctum or whatever it was, the sanctuary. So that's kind of cool to see as well. Issue 31, that's also the cover they use for the trade paperback that I have. It's Take the Fight to the Enemy. And it's got Zane in a really cool pose. He's got his left hand kind of forward pointing down at the ground. His right hand's got the lightsaber aimed down along his leg. Uh, you know, just a classic Zane pose. I really like, though, that, that in the cover, his eyes kind of look sithy. So you're not quite sure what's going on with that. Really cool the way that they play that off. I, I think that's probably one of my favorites. 32 is another good one. Uh, and, and, of course, these are obviously done by Brian Ching. They just got that classic Ching look to him. Zane's looks like he's on his knees and he's got his hands handcuffed. He's holding his hands up like, don't strike me down. And Lucian's about to do a, a, a judgment delivery coming down. Renegade Padawan brought to justice. Uh, another good cover there. Issue 33, another really good one. Also, again, done by Brian Ching. It's got Hazen on the cover with his hand up with Coruscant burning. And it's like, the dark heart of the covenant revealed. The only thing about this one that, that threw me a little bit off is that the helmet he's holding in this one is exactly the helmet that was on the Covenant's little storehouse, but it's not the one that he was wearing in the issue. Uh, maybe that's probably where I got confused about that earlier. I'm not really sure. Uh, 34, another great one Master versus Padawan with Lucian and Zane going at it. Uh, you know, great covers. Brian Ching's just nailing them. We get to uh, 35, though. Thirty-five kind of smooths out a little bit. I, I'm not such a, a, a fan of this style. It's got duel with the dark side and Griff's blasting a blaster. And this time Dre is holding the red lightsaber. He's blasting uh, the bolt back or, or absorbing it. I'm not really sure what's going on there. But his uniform's all uh, shredded up. But he's got a very I don't know Dracula-esque like look to him. And Griff kind of looks like a monsterific Dracula. Like this cover. I'm not exactly sure who did it, but I'm not such a fan of the styling of it. Uh, and then, of course, you know, we've got the great trade paperback cover, which was the one we mentioned earlier with the Volume 6 Vindication.
0: Yeah, these were all pretty good covers. Um, the ones that we got for Exalted uh, Part 1, uh, decent enough group shot. Uh, part 2... Uh, the character of uh, Felm just a little bit over the top in terms of his uh, muscular stature. But again, the idea is that they're supposed to get bigger and stronger as they get older for his species. So it kind of makes sense. Um, the cover then for 31 Turnabout, very generic, except for what it says. Zane just kind of standing there with the lightsaber. Cool art. And this is when Brian Ching or uh, winds up picking up the, uh, the art chores for the covers again. Cool image. Nice little kind of one-shot, but at the same time tells you really nothing about the story aside from the words in it. And, of course, to not give spoilers, that's the cover they went with for the trade paperback. So it works, but kind of generic, not a whole lot to it. Uh, Once you get into the ones, uh, still by Brian Ching for Vindication itself. Uh, Usually when I think of this story, I think of the one for 32 or 33. Uh, 32 being the one with Zane in chains, and it looks like uh, Lucian's about to come down and kill him with the shadow over Lucian, with just the light from the lightsaber lighting him up. Uh, That's a very cool image. Or I think of the one with Hazen there from the fire uh, holding up the lightsaber, even though it doesn't exactly match the way Hazen looks on the inside. Uh, That's a huge spoiler kind of cover. But, of course, by that point, the previous issue had revealed uh, Hazen and that look to him on the last page. Uh, But just like people are like, what the heck? Who is this guy? What's the deal? Why is he so important? That's the issue we get his background. Um, so in a sense, that makes perfect sense to make that the cover. The Dark Heart of the Covenant revealed, yes, his origins inside. Um, oddly enough, the one I think is one of my favorites of all the ones in this one that I don't tend to think of when I think of Vindication is 34, where it actually has Zane and Lucian finally battling with lightsabers. Very cool looking, a confrontation we've been waiting for for a very long time. And then I'm with you on how 35 feels Different, feels almost movie poster painted-like. The last issue, for whatever reason, has that cover uh, by Dan Scott, where it's more of a painted type of look. Uh, Lucian is more defined than we usually see him. Same thing with Griff, the long uh, fingernails and such. Not exactly how I would expect the characters to look if they were made even more realistic-looking, um, but it works. I'm just kind of surprised that we don't see Zane on there at all. It's Griff versus Lucian in that one. But then again, we got Zane and Lucian twice already just in Vindication. So I guess something had to give somewhere.
1: Well, I think the give in this case is, is where I felt like, you know, Griff kind of took highlight as this came to an end, that Griff was the reason why all of this came about. He was the one that was foresaw. You know, it wasn't Zane, it was Griff. So in that regard, it works. Yeah, okay, as long as that's not Brian Ching, I'm okay with that. Because I was just like, wow, that's, that's, that's a weird cover there. And you're going, Ching, 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 and then boom, to this one. I don't know. It, it kind of does make me question, though, why you would bounce, you know, when you have one more cover left of the series. Why not just let Brian round them all out? Like, I, it's one of those things that, that I stop and I question a lot because with Marvel comics, especially, you know, sometimes I really enjoy the covers of a comic and then I'll open it up and it doesn't have anything like it. I mean, Vector is a perfect example of that. The covers were glorious. Then you get inside and the art was so cartoony, I couldn't stand it. Uh, but it, it's one of those things that makes me question why they make those choices. I mean, why not just let Ching round it out?
0: Well, I wonder if in this case what we had was was a workload issue, because he hadn't done the last couple of issues. Well, um, huh? at least he didn't do Exalted. And then we've got not only do we have Dan Scott doing this particular cover, but you also had Bong Dezo coming in and doing the art in the flashback issue, the second part of Vindication, which makes me think that part of the workload to get it right for uh, 32, 34, and 35 required that he step back perhaps from the covers as much, and that he not do the interior artwork um, for 33. But this is one of those series where you can't do like what they did with Legacy. What they did with Legacy constantly was they had uh, Jan Dursima doing the artwork when it focused on uh, Cade and his team, but then any other time they tended to swap in a different artist so she could work ahead on those. Um, In this case, you really don't have stories that leave Zane and the crew completely out of it. Because that's just not the kind of era we're dealing with. We got what maybe one of those where we had the interlude where it was all about uh, Lucian's background, but otherwise not. Um, so they fit the fill-in artist in where they could. I guess they had Dezo do the flashback one.
1: That makes sense, actually. I mean, when you put it like that, it actually makes a lot of sense. There are those aspects about you know how it works and stuff that that slipped me quite a bit. You know, I just want the just want the satisfaction of opening my comic and enjoying what I'm reading. <laughs>
0: I'm a little
1: bit of a mess. I'm now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films we'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom and remember you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website second airborne division at www.starwarsreport.com episodes are also available on Zoom Stitcher and on iTunes which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it you can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films, or just type Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us, our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU slash Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention you our Audible Trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash StarWarsReport, you get a free trial run of Audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Legends universe or the canon one with a new dawn or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months. That's one year with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler and Nathan saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you
0: and don't quote us the odds that we'll have just as much fun with the back half or so of KOTOR when we eventually get to it
1: Well, the odds that we'll start covering this new canon soon because I'm a slow reader nowadays And even. I thought I that out. Even real life.
0: <laughs> Different, feels almost movie poster painted like. Um, where Lucian seems to be much more defined, but not quite the way I would have expected her to be defined. Uh, and Griff, kind of the same way, with the long nails and the long fangs and that sort of thing. Um, that is also Brian Ching oddly enough, who did all of that art for the cover of 35, so it's interesting that he sort of switched styles, it seems, on us um, in that particular cover, but in general, all good covers this time around.
1: Wow, okay, knowing that that's Brian Ching, I've got to look at this one again, because like, that, yeah, that's such a visceral, different style, like, wow, like, okay, like, that really wow I, I would i mean if you didn't really literally just look that up i would not believe you i would argue with you about that i would not at all buy it wow so yeah if you have actually wait chance, actually sure to wait
0: wait let me say i think this is where they got it wrong and i think i just got it wrong because i looked that up and i haven't gone to the letters pages of the the future issues just yet i haven't in a while uh but when you look this up on Wikipedia, they've got a different person. The issue itself says script by John Jackson Miller, art by Brian Ching. Oh, no. I screwed it up. Let me say it again. Let me let me, let me hit that one again and then you can respond because I fucked up that one. All right. The Knights of the Old It's sort of a sideline of stories, whereas the main bo-